This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Lisa Kefauver. Lisa's a speaker and an educator and a writer, a podcaster. Um, she's a social worker that turned into a grief and empathy activist. What does that mean? Well, you're going to learn today. And what I learned in this interview is just the importance of grief support and empathy education within the context of value-based healthcare. I mean, Lisa Kefauver, she's someone that has 20 plus years of lived experience and professional experience in dealing with grief and empathy. Um, she is the CEO and founder of Reimagining Grief. She brings messages to a global audience and provides keynote addresses and workshops and provides deeply vulnerable and authentic and insightful perspectives and writing and, uh, and creating this awareness around the importance of grief, especially in this grief avoidance type of culture that we have today. And Dan, what I was most impressed with this interview today was that Lisa's someone that's thinking about how can we leverage the power of a narrative and bear witness to the patient and create more empathetic systems of care to optimize whole person-centered approaches to care delivery within value. I, I just thought this was such an important conversation, and I think our listeners are really going to learn a great deal about how they can view this issue of grief in a much different way in the clinical context. Yeah, Eric, this conversation is so important, and Lisa's personal story is so meaningful, and the context or the challenges that she had to go through to be able to share this message with us is so important. And, you know, this is a time of Thanksgiving that many of us and many across the country are focusing on the things that they have that they're grateful for, and, and where for many who've lost someone or who have lost something important to them, this is a heightened time of grieving for them. And so, it's such a critical time for us to be thinking about her message, to realize what grief is, how it manifests, to recognize it and to normalize it, and then be able to understand the things that we can do to, 
to personally help ourselves, to help our family members, to help each other, to the things the systems can do for patients and for their providers who are experiencing grief. Like you said, Eric, it's a critical conversation. I'm so glad we had her today. Let's go ahead and hear from Lisa Kefauver as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. Lisa, thanks for coming on the Race to Value. It's so great to have you this week. It is such an honor to be here and having this conversation today. We're going to get into some good stuff, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. And as one of the leading experts in grief and empathy, it's just so awesome to be speaking with you today. And this topic of grief and empathy is so important in the context of healthcare. And I really look forward to seeing how our discussion unfolds today. I mean, this podcast also is so timely because we're right in the middle of the Thanksgiving holiday season. And, you know, the holidays are where grief intensifies for many. So I think it's just such an important topic. And the other thing too, it's just so great to connect with you. It's we, we got to know each other about seven years ago when we were working in the nonprofit sector, helping serve patients with cancer. And personally speaking, you've been a real source of inspiration for me and personify hope and overcoming grief because of your own life journey. And I know that's led you to where you are now and reimagining grief and supporting others as a grief activist. So couldn't be more excited. How about we, we go ahead and kick it off? I'd love to pose the first question to you. And I think where we might want to start is your personal story. You've really experienced some pretty awful traumatic, painful events and have experienced grief and loss in your own life. I mean, I know you spent the last few years of high school watching and caring for your mom as she suffered immensely from the onset of a chronic illness that is still with her today. And you went on to become a clinical social worker and a narrative therapist where you've had the privilege to bear witness to others' experience of, of pain, chronic and terminal illness, trauma and grief. And your personal story with grief really culminated, as I understand, with this excruciating loss of your husband, you know, seeing him die in your arms, leaving you a widow at age 40 and a single parent to your seven-year-old child. And during this harrowing experience and dealing with the healthcare environment and the months preceding your husband's death, you found that, as I understand, various providers lacked empathy and they didn't actually listen to what was going on with your husband until he was finally diagnosed with brain cancer in July of 2011, an illness that he ultimately succumbed to 17 days later. Can you briefly share that personal story and how your experience with the healthcare system during Eric's illness made you think differently about what's needed to improve care delivery, especially as it relates to the expression of empathy and how providers can better listen to family and caregivers? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for the opportunity to share a little bit about that. You know, when I look back, this has been over 10 years now, uh, 11 years when we started navigating the medical system. And I still sometimes, frankly, am shocked at all the missed opportunities that various doctors and healthcare systems had to really listen to us. Both Eric and I are educated, articulate, self-aware individuals. And as you mentioned, he wasn't diagnosed until very shortly before his death but he was exhibiting symptoms more than a year beforehand and began going to different doctors, first a general practitioner who, without running any tests, decided the symptoms that he was talking about, which were deep depression, paranoia about conversations at work, lethargy, weight gain, et cetera, decided he was having midlife depression and put him on Paxil. 
And even though I was a social worker at the time and was trying to tell my husband, I didn't think that was the right course of treatment. We needed more information. He trusted his doctor as we're all trained to do. Fast forward through the fall and his behavior became quite frightening, getting lost. He was a geographer for a living, was the kind of man who would carry a spider outside instead of killing it and yet became quite violent and creating situations in our household, in our family, where I was making safety plans and trying to keep myself and my daughter safe. And with all of that articulation to both that doctor that we were just referred to yet another mental health provider, no medical testing was done. We were very, again, clear, articulate, handed in paperwork, also conducted interviews where I was directly, of course, I had the benefit of being a social worker saying, could this be early onset Alzheimer's? Could there be something neurological going on? This is really not him. And we all fall prey to this. They were always looking at Eric through the lens of a mental health issue. And so we all end up having these biases. And I think because their lens was that focus and because they didn't experience empathy or compassion, they actually missed so much information and cues that led to their continued misdiagnosis. So they took him off Paxil, said, just go to therapy. You'll be better if you do CBT. Meanwhile, my daughter's in therapy, we're in marriage counseling, I'm making safety plans, and our lives are falling apart. The last year of our lives were excruciating. So we continued on multiple phone calls. I won't go through the details, but each time, you know, we as frankly educated white cisgender heterosexual adults were being very articulate, asking for help, saying there was something wrong, asking folks to trust us that this course of treatment and this diagnosis did not feel right. No one listened. And I can't ascribe, of course, intent on any of the doctors, but I think lacking empathy, having the obsession or the focus of expertise meant that there were so many points along the way where they missed the diagnosis. And again, that comes from two individuals who were able to be quite articulate, who had otherwise been very healthy, active. We were just ran a half marathon the year before. It wasn't until finally, literally an incident of him falling down from a dizzy spell after months and months of headaches and flashing signs in his eyes, et cetera, that he actually insisted that another doctor run a scan because he knew something was wrong. And that's when they found what they described as a grapefruit-sized brain tumor that had shifted his brainstem. And they said, we don't even understand how you're talking or walking. So that's kind of the details to say there's the context of what point of view does each care provider come from if they are assuming their own expertise at the expense of the humanity of the patients or patients caregivers in front of them and not listening so much can be missed now he had a grapefruit sized brain tumor i just want to say for those listeners who are listening in advance so he probably wasn't going to live forever anyways but i can't help but think what an absolutely different last year of our lives we would have had our daughter who was seven at the time would have had if we had been diagnosed correctly in the first place. Lisa, I also want to ask you about your perspective on the anticipatory grief experienced by caregivers and families. And the term anticipatory grief, for our listeners, it refers to this feeling of grief occurring before the impending loss. Typically, the impending loss is the death of someone close due to illness. In terms of healthcare, if the care delivery system lacks empathy and is detached from the humanity of the experience, there can be adverse health consequences like what you described to the families and caregivers that are going through the impending death of a loved one. And research shows that a direct correlation exists between anticipatory grieving and the caregiver's quality of life. 
For example, there's a well-known quantitative study that showed that a pediatric cancer diagnosis has a negative impact on the health of parents experiencing increasing stress and a decrease in physical and mental health, all of which are related to the process of anticipatory grief. So my question for you is, how can the healthcare system be better equipped to support families and caregivers going through anticipatory grief? And can this movement to value-based healthcare somehow be an enabler of more effective relationships with those closest to patients and in turn support them better in what they're going through as well? Yeah, well, I appreciate you bringing up that subject because though grief sort of writ large is ignored in our culture and our society and our systems, particularly our medical systems, I think anticipatory grief is one of the most misunderstood and least visible and gets misunderstood really. So I do think about, uh, you know, a move to a value-based care can help improve that. I think very first thing is how are our nurses and our doctors and other providers in the healthcare system trained and educated on the reality of anticipatory grief, the symptomatology that might, they might be witnessing. One of the things I think we see most often is unlike more than other types of grief, anticipatory grief is pronounced anger and loss of emotional control. And I think we can all know whether we've were providers ourselves or whether we've been in the hospital, the ways in which those individuals, whether the patient themselves, who's coming to terms with their own death or a family member gets labeled disagreeable troubled patient, right? Angry and agitated, and we pathologize their behavior. So I think even just the training and the education to help normalize and name that some of the behaviors and the emotions, the forgetfulness, um, the rage, that is actually normative response to anticipatory grief. So I think we have to start, I mean, my answer almost always is going to be name it and normalize it. That can't just be the one social worker who is maybe on the rounds, who's going to be coming in. That has to be starting right from every level of provider. I think the piece of that is not just naming and educating that for the provider, but what are the tools that providers are offering the patients and their families? So we're giving you tools on, hey, here's the course of how you need to prepare for chemo or surgery or treatment. But how are we as not we, but how are the providers and health systems using their authority and their expertise to say, hey, I also want to let you know, you might be experiencing some psychological, emotional, cognitive, physical impact because of this thing you're experiencing, which is anticipatory grief. And here are some tools, mindfulness, sleep, rest, nutrition, et cetera, that might help ease that pain so that you can be more present for the patient that you love. So I think naming and normalizing and educating goes in both directions, both for the providers and the systems, but of course, then translating that as just as equally important as a surgical instruction or a wound care instruction. Well, Lisa, I lost my parents a few years ago and, you know, I, I really understand intimately the grieving process. And, you know, when you lose somebody that you really care about and love, I mean, you never really get past it. I mean, the loss, the void, that hole that they leave becomes part of your life and it becomes a really important part of the journey and like how you move forward and we change and we adapt to life without that particular person. And eventually, you know, over time, you reach this point where you find a resting place in your heart for the memories to reside and a place where you can learn to smile and be at peace with those memories. But Lisa, um, you mentioned mindfulness and meditation for the providers. And I know that's also an effective way to navigate through the grief and 
accelerate the healing process for those experiencing grief as well. I know mindfulness meditation has been a significant part of your work with the way that you guide clients and, and their own journey in grieving. And I'm really interested to hear your views on meditation and in particular, how the healthcare system can more readily embrace the power of meditation and healing. I mean, it's been shown that stress-related health problems are responsible, believe it or not, up to 80% of visits to the doctor, and it accounts for the third highest reason for healthcare expenditures behind heart disease and cancer, but as few as 3% of doctors actually talk to patients about how to reduce stress, and even fewer talk to them about mindfulness. There was a research study that came out of Harvard a few years ago that even showed that meditation programs could translate into healthcare savings of anywhere from $640 to as much as $25,500 per patient each year because of the lowered utilization of medical services and emergency room visits. So I wanted to ask if you could explain how this active practice of mindfulness and meditation could be used as a powerful tool in the healthcare setting for reducing stress and improving focus and emotional regulation and increasing self-compassion and body awareness. Also, what do you think healthcare organizations and insurance plans, how should they be approaching this and in this race to value that we're in and thinking about how to expand healthcare treatment and benefits to better integrate meditation to more of a whole person-based healthcare delivery model? Well, this, as you know, Eric, is one of my favorite topics, so I appreciate you bringing it up. I mean, I'll start right up from the front, which is, I think, as we're moving towards value-based care, we absolutely need to think about covering mindfulness and meditation as an integral and helpful service for patients and families, caregivers. So I think, you know, if we fund that, if we make that meaningful, then that shows patients and their families that this has value and it's important. I think mindfulness, just to remind folks who, you know, it's a mindfulness and meditation gets thrown around there. And a lot of people are like, man, I'm too busy professional. I can't sit cross-legged with my eyes closed for hours on end and doing that. But mindfulness is actually really the antidote to exactly what you were talking about, which is the everyday stress that we experience, whether we are the physician or the nurse in the hospital, whether we are the patient, the patient's family or other caregiver. So mindfulness is bringing your attention to this moment and doing it with curiosity and non-judgment and not getting attached to the outcome. So we cannot often prevent the stresses that happen in our life. That is just the nature of the world that we live in, particularly, of course, when you're thinking about navigating a health system, you're there for some reason. So it's not a cure to the disease or illness. It's actually an opportunity to reconnect with your body to remind yourself that you are safe in this moment. So it's kind of a grounding activity because what happens when we're navigating stress, whether it's an angry email from a boss or a diagnosis of a life ending illness, our body goes into that fight or flight or freeze that stress response. And so we stop being able to think rationally, our immunity is compromised, our blood flow, sometimes we have digestive issues. There's lots of things that our body is beautifully doing for us if we needed to run from a saber toothed tiger. Unfortunately, we don't need that. And what happens is we often sit and stew in stress. So what I've experienced myself through my own grief, as you said, not only after the loss of my husband, but then a few years later, I was with my very close friend when he died, he died in my arms from muscular dystrophy. I've been using mindfulness as a way to kind of return to some sense of agency, some peace, even if it's just momentarily. 
and, and of course, as you talked about the sciences there, it improves focus, it reduces stress, it increases our emotional regulation, which is particularly important if we're experiencing anticipatory grief or grief after death. It also allows us to bring compassion. You know, the researcher, Dr. Kristen Neff, reminds us about the power of self-compassion being self-kindness versus judgment, about kind of understanding that we all experience suffering and pain, that we're not alone in this, and that we don't have to identify with it. We don't have to lock into that hard thing that's happening. We can just notice it. I think one of the primary notions, though, that I want to get across in this conversation is, yes, of course, make sure that this is maybe a covered course of treatment when you're thinking about folks going through the medical system. But I actually think mindfulness practices should be an integral part of medical education training and rounds or other practices. So whenever I'm doing workshops or talks, working with medical schools, like I've had the honor of doing recently with Baylor College of Medicine, I even open up every workshop with a three to five minute arriving mindfulness activity. Now we don't always have three to five minutes. I understand the constraints of doctors and nurses and other professionals, but what if you paused for 30 seconds outside of the room before you walked into a patient and closed your eyes and did some centering mindfulness activities so that you could be fully present. The research shows we're much better able to listen, to attend with empathy. We're much less likely to make mistakes and also we can shed whatever stress and energy we have. So we all, whether we're mothers or fathers, doctors or nurses, carry energy and stress with us. And mindfulness practices help us to discharge that so that when we walk into the room to be with a patient, we aren't bringing in the stress that we carried maybe from the news that we delivered to the last patient or whatever happened in the last time segment of our day. So I think mindfulness, again, is not just about only a useful treatment for the stresses of navigating the healthcare system for patients and their families. I think it's absolutely necessary for the providers as well. Lisa, I like what you said about the physical part of it. And people don't always think about grief as being a full body experience, but just like it affects mental health, it also has these physical aspects that you mentioned. And physical symptoms may not come for everybody or with every kind of grief, but intense grief, for example, that caused by the death of a child or partner could bring about these side effects that might feel more physical than anything else. And there are particular heart risks even associated with grief. Even a specific temporary syndrome brought on by the death of a loved one called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy or broken heart syndrome. And other physical consequences of grief include lowered immunity, body aches and pain, digestive issues, like you said, unhealthy coping mechanisms, sleep problems and fatigue. And given both the mental and physical manifestation of grief on a person's health and well-being, there are really profound implications for grief counseling and support in a population health model. In value-based care, healthcare organizations are learning to deliver care in a more patient-centered interdisciplinary way that integrates social workers more effectively into the care delivery model as a way to improve patient health and reduce disease. Can you describe more of the role of social workers in a value-based care model as part of that interdisciplinary team? And how would the inclusion of social workers create that opportunity for more effective interventions in, in care delivery, particularly in the disease prevention aspect of grief counseling and support? 
Yeah. Well, I'm going to just name right up front. I have a bias because I'm a social worker. So I think a social worker should be a part of every care team. But all joking aside, I think it's absolutely necessary. Look, we all bring our own lens, our own expertise to bear. We want our brain surgeon to be an expert at brain surgery. We want our nurse to really be able to draw blood, do other ways in which we can help and support the patient. Social workers are adeptly trained at really understanding the social, emotional, existential, psychological issues that patients and their caregivers might face. That's part of their training. So I think having them as part of an interdisciplinary team, not only will help them think through and offer up treatment plans or support services that the patients and caregivers need. I know from my friends who work in the social work field, let's say in pediatric palliatives and other systems, that they're also called on often to help a doctor or a nurse understand the presenting behaviors or the risks or reminding them what they might be communicating as far as care plans with the family. I think Good grief support starts in the hospitals before a patient dies. If we're talking about a particular illness that's going to result in death, as we talked about, of course, anticipatory grief is being experienced and palliative care does as well, you know, by the patient itself, but the family might be experiencing anticipatory grief. And to be honest, feeling some guilt about it as in that, that somehow giving up on the person that they love. So when social workers as part of an interdisciplinary team are helping make visible for the families and the caregivers and the other providers that these issues are there, that helping them think about resources that might be in the community. And most frankly, people always worry, I don't know what to say. We get uncomfortable with talking about hard things in our culture. For one thing, we look at death as failure, and that's a problem for the families and the medical professionals. So when we think about how social workers can model for the other providers and for the families, just normalizing the grief experience and looking them straight in the eye, showing up as a human to another human, which I think social workers do better than many professional providers, and just acknowledging the hardness, the hardship that this is, and helping and assisting them to connect with the community resources or the family resources that might help them along the way after those providers are no longer in their life. I think even just naming and normalizing, acknowledging some of the things the two of you have already shared, which is this doesn't go away overnight. You might be experiencing sleeplessness, lowered immunity, other health and physical problems. And just even letting them know that means I remember I was a social worker, of course, a clinical social worker at the time. And I remember weeks and months later, I was having so much like memory, short-term memory issues and cognitive failures. And I thought I was going crazy because nobody had said to me, this is a really common side effect of deep, intense grief. So like I said, at the beginning, I always come back to naming and normalizing and setting people up for success so that they cannot internalize or over-identify there's something wrong with me. They can look at or acknowledge mindfully those symptoms and go, oh, this is grief. Lisa, as we're discussing grief, I'm, you know, I'm just thinking about how as humans, we all share in that experience of grief universally, but it's been noted that people of color can grieve much differently than those in the majority population. For example, people of color are, are often grieving a loss of hope and safety in addition to someone's life 
when dealing with acts of violence, for example, in marginalized communities. Grief is a huge shared experience, which is reinforced by the reliance of human connectivity in BIPOC communities. And grief can also activate other layers of trauma for people of color. For many, the fear, exhaustion, and constant grief that comes from having to regularly deal with various forms of discrimination are compounded when additional trauma piles on. And the scale and frequency of loss and communities of color have been on public display, as we all know, over the last couple of years. And while most people get to grieve in private, I mean, it seems that many people of color are forced to witness and contend with loss in front of the entire world. I mean, these videos of brutality and hate crimes like the, the video of George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police, those often become like a permanent fixture and inundate social media feeds and it offers no escape. And though grief is nothing new to Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, the last Two years in particular have really prompted many, as I understand, to seek support that acknowledges and serves the uniqueness of their identities and their cultural practices. So I wanted to ask you if you could provide your perspective on providing grief for marginalized communities and how can we ensure that grief support isn't a one-size-fits-all model and that's typified by a majority view of the grief experience and instead make it a little bit more specific to the, the needs of marginalized communities? This is such an important topic and such a great question. And I want to just name and acknowledge right up front, I'm a white woman. So there are some things that I'm speaking to that are beyond my own lived experience. So just as a context or a backdrop to that, I do want to just not push back is not the right word, but just sort of add on to what you said. Just as one example, George Floyd's was murdered at the hands of police. He didn't, it wasn't a death at the hands of police. And also we've been seeing this on video for the last few years, but this has been an, a true understood experience in communities of color really since the taking over of this country. So grief and trauma actually gets passed down epigenetically. So when you talk about compounding grief, it's not just that people are losing one person after the other, either personally or witnessing it in the news. We're sort of, many of us are, have experienced unacknowledged grief over multiple generations, and that changes our physiology. So again, a topic for another day and some great thinkers and researchers out there on that. So that's sort of the backdrop. I appreciate you saying the one size fits all can't be the way we show up to value-based care. I'd say the place to start is how many people of color are providers in your hospital system. So if you have exclusively white providers offering treatment courses who don't have the lived experience of what it means to be a person of color in this country, I think we're already missing the boat. We're missing opportunities to actually deliver care and value. I think the other thing is we need to think about what do we understand to be important about the mourning practices of different groups of people that are not sort of Judeo-Christian white mourning practices, which by the way, tend to be very private, stiff upper lip, kind of constrained. So when we think about leave policies, treatment policies, even what we do with bodies in hospital systems, if they need to be taken for autopsy, well, how does that align or not align with the religious, spiritual, or cultural beliefs of the family of that patient? And so when we think about values, whether we're talking about treatments for grief support, but even more largely, how do we treat people in hospital systems? We need to have broader education and training and understanding that there is lots of different ways 
in which people mourn and grieve, and it impacts their spiritual and cultural backgrounds. And we can cause inadvertent harm if we're not made aware of that. Anyone can learn that. I'm not saying it's only persons of color providers who can, but if you don't have one or two person of color as a provider in your medical system or hospital system, you are absolutely at a disadvantage to really show up in your full humanity and with providing full value. I think just another layer of grief that this topic touches on, though anybody from any background can experience disenfranchised grief. We hear about that a lot. Of course, folks who experience stillbirth or miscarriage are often disenfranchised in their grief. It is predominantly true that in communities of color, there's a large disenfranchisement that takes hold. And when grief can't be experienced, as we talked about before or expressed, anger and rage end up being the hallmarks. We all need to process and move through our grief. So just thinking about the ways in which as providers and as systems of care, how are we making sure that we aren't further disenfranchising people's grief experiences, either through the words that we say, the systems that we offer, the courses of treatment that we provide. We really need to think about that from a larger perspective and do our best not only to mitigate further injury, but frankly, in my opinion, to help think about how we help heal and grow and really shift our systems of care to be whole person centered. And that whole person definition needs to not just be the model of middle-class cisgender, white, heterosexual people, which when you think about the medical studies that have happened over the last hundreds of years, those tend to be the folks who are studied. So that whole person isn't just about understanding the cognitive, mental, physical, financial impact of grief on a body, on a family system. We also need to think about whole persons, meaning that we all come to this world. We come to the healthcare system from various backgrounds with different lived experiences and different cultures and practices around grief and mourning. Lisa, I'd like to ask you about the impact of COVID-19 on the grieving process specifically. In psychiatry, there's a condition known as complicated grief disorder that characterizes those who are significantly and functionally impaired by prolonged grief symptoms for at least 12 months after bereavement. And there are a multitude of different causes for this, such as losing a family member. Uh, however, we now have a new contributor to complicated grief in our society, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. And the loss of loved ones due to the disease, which is exacerbated by social isolation, income shocks, and an overall sense of economic and political insecurity. Can you speak to the impact of COVID-19 in your work as a grief activist? And how will the pandemic shape the grieving journey in the years to come? Yeah, this is such a big question. I think the truth is, to the last part of your question, we don't know yet. We don't know what the long-term impact is going to be of the grief that we're experiencing. And I'll just say, as hopefully your listeners know, we don't just grieve over the death loss. So all of us in the globe basically have been experiencing different layers of grief due to the losses of safety, security, sometimes then the financial, all of these other things. In addition to that, folks have been grieving either losses not related to COVID or COVID death losses. And one of the ways in which we move through healthy grieving is that we are able to participate in the rituals and the ceremonies that are important to us, regardless of kind of what background you come from. And so one of the complicating factors for folks who are grieving in the time of the pandemic is that they have not been able to gather in groups, participate in rituals the way they 
might have. They might not have even been able to been by the bedside of the loved one who was passing, which is something they might have done otherwise, not in the times of the pandemic. So there's all kinds of compounding factors around grief, guilt, shame. There's also the notion that because everybody quote unquote is grieving in the world, there's a disenfranchisement in a way. There's not really space for those folks who have lost someone to death to feel like they have room to grieve because who will they turn to? Everybody else in their life might be grieving. So that is a complicating factor. That means there might be additional emotional dysregulation, additional physical, psychological, existential harm that causes patients. I do want to say, though, I do recognize that there are particular cases where there is complicated grief, as is written in the DSM and the diagnostic manual. I think as a culture, as a community, we over emphasize complication. I worry when people say the word 12 months as if somehow some marker on a calendar is supposed to determine the shift in someone's psychological, emotional, and physical well-being. So while I think it's important for us to keep track of ourselves and our loved ones and our patients to see what kind of shifts and movements have happened in their grief, in their relationship with grief, I'm always a little hesitant to throw the label complicated grief down just generally, even outside of the pandemic. But related to the pandemic, I really do think in some ways, there's almost when you think about a developmental delay of a child, if they've gone through something, I think we're gonna have a grief delay for many people so that they were not, didn't have the space, the safe psychological or physical or financial safety to process their grief as they might have in other times. And so I think as if, and I'm crossing my fingers here, we get back to some place of normalcy that allows us to not be in social isolation so much, that allows us to return and re-engage with the rituals of mourning and grief. We might be seeing people newly grieving even if the death or the loss was 12 months ago, 18 months ago, et cetera. So I think that's what we can start to anticipate. And that delay might come with some ferocity because it's been pent up in a way for so long. Lisa, I'd like to ask you next about physicians and other healthcare providers and how they deal with grieving. Healthcare workers deal with death and dying on almost a daily basis. And now they have a heightened experience of personal grief due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we've talked a lot on our show with other guests about this, this form of grief and what providers are really experiencing now also just due to the broken healthcare system that they're a part of. I mean, physicians are often called into the profession of medicine out of the sense of altruism, and then they get into the system. And then they realize that providing care in a fee-for-service environment that's not value-based. It really favors transactional activities over true, meaningful relationships with patients. And it's been projected that burnout is affecting well over half of the physicians in practice. And some physicians are even going as far as to say that the profession is dealing with moral injury because the word burnout is insulting and insufficient in describing the pain and grief that they feel when the system prevents doctors from doing what's right thereby forcing them to unduly inflict harm on patients unintentionally, where physicians are just part of that system and they themselves are, are also experiencing a form of injury. So I wanted to ask you, how can we provide better support for the grief experienced by healthcare providers and what can be done to establish a culture of wellness among 
the healthcare workforce to build resiliency and mitigate the potentiality for complicated grief associated with the inherent rigors of the profession? Yeah. Wow, Eric, such a powerful question and so much to unpack there. I really appreciate you bringing up the the phrase moral injury because I do think that's what's happening. And if I could wave my magic wand when we think about a shift to value-based care, I think it would be how do we shift valuing relational instead of transactional? And that's a big thing. I don't know how we measure that. I don't know how we value that. But I think at the very core, when we think about where we started today's conversation around empathy, is it's not only probably what the doctors were hoping to do when they got into medicine, but we know that actually has positive health outcomes, both for the provider and for the patient, whether we're talking about physical health, emotional health, psychological health. So thinking about whatever shifts or changes we make to reimbursement models, staffing models, we need to think about how are we bolstering capacity for relational experiences and reducing the value that we put on transactional experiences. I think that's a place to start. I also think when we think about shifting systems of care, when we do reimbursements, if it's number of bodies and beds, and and I'm not an expert in how we do the reimbursement here, but when we think about that, that actually impedes our provider's ability to be relational and that moral injury cannot be understated. So when someone is feeling shame or guilt or feeling their own pain or hardship, as I said before, they carry that into each encounter that they have with the next patient and the next patient. We know the rates of death by suicide are on the rise across all populations, but definitely in the provider community. What I think we don't talk about often enough is not only might they feel like they are part of a system that's causing undue deaths or causing harm, they themselves may be grieving. So I think we often forget that these providers maybe are losing loved ones in the course of normal times, definitely in the course of pandemic, they are experiencing their own grief. And so how are we supporting or training with the resources we provide within healthcare systems for the providers? If a provider does not attend to their own grief, if they do not examine their own grief beliefs, if they do not do the work of their own healing, they are gonna be at much bigger risk to be making further harm and injury because they're not going to be attending to their physical well-being, their cognitive well-being. They're going to be feeling all of the impacts of grief that all of us feel and then being asked to to perform at a high level of expertise. And not to mention the fact that many, as you said, doctors go in and they end up caring deeply for their patients, which as a patient, I think we all would like to think that our providers care deeply for us. So whether they're grieving their own personal losses outside of the healthcare systems or experiencing sort of vicarious grief or vicarious trauma through witnessing so much grief. I think we have to shift how we train, not only train and educate providers on support, we have to shift how we value relation versus transaction, but we also have to shift What kind of supports are we offering the providers themselves? Today, we've talked a lot about how can we support the patients and their caregivers when you're thinking about grief, but I often think about how are we actually emboldening and supporting the healing process for providers? I've had the good fortune, as I said, to talk with some residents who are witnessing a lot of loss at Baylor College of Medicine. I've been working with a palliative care team who's out of Kentucky who have been witnessing a tremendous amount of loss, and we cannot under estimate the importance of valuing caring for our providers in their grief and recognizing that that has a positive impact then on their ability to deliver whole centered 
patient-valued care. Lisa, I'm glad you mentioned the palliative care work that you're doing. I wanted to ask you about how we as an industry can more readily embrace palliative care in the grieving process. You know, in healthcare, we deal with so many problems in the human body that are fixable. But with regard to the two main unfixables in life, aging and dying, it seems like we often don't know how to have an honest conversation. Instead, the medical industrial complex often inflicts therapies on terminally ill patients that actually shorten their lives or increase suffering before death. And Dr. Zubin Damania, aka Z-Dog, MD, even goes as far as to say that not having advanced directives requires doctors to follow hospital protocol and procedures that force them to torture people until they die. Instead of focusing on the question, how can I prevent death in the curative care model? Palliative care is really about asking a patient, how do you want to live? And changing the question changes the paradigm away from the escalation of clinical interventions that can shorten life and worsen the quality of life. What role do you think palliative care plays in helping patients overcome the grief associated with their own impending death? Yeah, this is such an important topic. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately as I reread Atul Gawande's Being Mortal. And if your listeners haven't read that book, I absolutely highly recommend it. It's also a TED Talk if you prefer to watch it instead of read it. First, I think we want to just make sure we clarify. So there's hospice, which is end of life, but palliative, right, is really about pain and suffering management. And so we need to think about that both in terms of physical pain and suffering, but how are we helping ease the suffering of anticipatory grief both for the patient and for the caregiver? And I appreciate you citing that shift in question. So when we think about a move to value right now, what we value is fixing and preventing death, which of course we like. We want that to happen when it's possible. But I think we do that so much at the expense, as you said, and our systems are built so much towards that model that doctors and other providers and even the patients and their families aren't encouraged or rewarded to think about that different question, which is how do I want to live? What makes something a good day? What are my non-negotiables about what I'm willing to lose or live without and what I need? And so when we train providers and then providers can then translate that to questions to the patients and their families, we are going to see a major shift in the quality of the lives of both the patients and the caregivers. I also think it helps reduce the moral injury to Eric's point earlier of the provider when they recognize that they are being forced to perform or undergo treatments to the patient that they know won't actually extend the patient's life and will actually diminish the quality and increase the suffering. So I think it goes back to, you know, again, I don't have a magic wand to sort of, you know, all things come down to money in the end. But I think when we think about what are we valuing, what kind of systems are we putting in place so that we value asking those questions and thinking differently about the value of reducing suffering and an increasing quality of life, that is, I'm sure absolutely has a tremendous impact, by the way, on the long-term grief of the survivor. So when you think about a family member or a loved one who suffered in the end when they didn't need to, there's guilt and shame associated that can complicate that person's grief. I struggled for a long time because I looked back and recognized all the different ways in which my husband had suffered unnecessarily in those intervening years. Now that was from misdiagnosis, but the same could have been true if they were encouraging treatments that caused more suffering and didn't cause any alleviation. So I do think 
palliative again is about the reducing of suffering. And I think that has to start with shifting the kinds of questions we're asking, which requires shifting what we actually value. And I think as humans, if we drop all of our MDs and our RNs or whatever, the MSWs, whatever training that we have, if we drop all of that and we show up as one human to the another, I think we can all get quickly in touch with that notion that it's important to think about asking that person, how do you want to live? What matters to you most? And those are the exact kind of questions we would hope someone asks of us. So we need to figure out to shift both the education and training and the financial models so that we shift and move towards questions like those. Lisa, you mentioned earlier about the importance of empathy education, and we should even begin you know, teaching physicians empathy in, in medical school. And I'd like to discuss the importance of empathy education in the context of value-based care. And in doing so, as I was thinking about this question, you know, I started thinking about Malcolm Gladwell's book entitled Blink. And I pulled a quote from that, which was really interesting. He talks about physicians that are sued, and I'll go ahead and read that now. The overwhelming number of people who suffer an injury due to the negligence of a doctor never filed a malpractice suit at all. Patients don't file lawsuits because they've been harmed by shoddy medical care. Patients file lawsuits because they've been harmed by shoddy medical care, and then something else happens to them beyond that. And Gladwell further says, what comes up again and again in malpractice cases is that patients say they were rushed or ignored or treated poorly from the beginning. So as, as I think about this issue, a lack of empathy, you know, the big takeaway here is, and the Gladwell case is that you know, if providers express better empathy, they would significantly mitigate their risk in getting sued for malpractice. But obviously the implications are much more profound and significant beyond that. I mean, having empathy, you know, helps build stronger relationships. And it actually improves clinical outcomes. And I think we've talked a great deal about that today. So as we wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to see if you could provide your perspective on the importance of empathy education and how can we have empathy more prominently demonstrated as a key value in healthcare. There's so many favorite topics today, but this is absolutely one of my favorite. And I appreciate bringing up that Malcolm Gladwell quote. And I do want to say it is really important. And I actually was involved in a lawsuit because the doctors ignored and ignored what we were saying and also then showed no remorse or regret or acknowledgement that they missed many, many signs. And I don't think we want to encourage empathy just to reduce financial risk, although I'm not naive to say that that might be the initial motivating factor for educations and hospital systems to think about it. I think how we incorporate empathy education, as you indicated, is really talking about getting at it right from the start. Again, um, just to mention, I had the honor of doing this with a cohort of residents recently, and that was the main focus of my training and education. And I heard over and over again from the residents, we need more training like this. We don't get this and we feel ill-equipped to show up and hold space and bear witness for the pain and suffering of our patients and their families. So back to reducing moral injury for doctors and nurses and other providers, I think we need to think about empathy as being just a critical component of education as, again, surgical techniques or wound care, et cetera. Empathy, as you said, has a huge impact on our own well-being. So when you think about empathy for providers, if they're experiencing empathy, if they are able to enact compassion, then they are much more likely to have positive outcomes, feel good, feel present, and be able to reduce this burnout, quote unquote, that is happening sort of in our system. 
outcomes. So like all things, it's really about who are the key stakeholders and decision makers when we think about medical education and how do we use the data, the statistics, and also just the understanding that as humans, our most primal need is for belonging to be understood and to feel connected. And so we can't treat the patient's liver or brain as if they're disconnected from their full body. And that requires us to be able to show up with empathy. I will say one of the things I've said all along, and I I also do empathetic training with leaders in kind of corporate settings as well, is that I think in our traditional models of expertise in this capitalistic, in our culture, right? Whether we're talking about medical providers or leaders in other industries, we have a very expert mentality that values fixing solutions, productivity. And so one of the challenges of incorporating empathy into a value-based care model is it really asks those individuals to pause for a moment and to lessen the value on fixing and to show up with empathy. Now, of course, the bonus is when you show up with empathy, you're much more likely to listen, understand what the problem is and being able to come up with a solution. But I think it's hard, just frankly, on our egos when we are in an expert role to set down the shackles in a way of having to be right and having to have the answers and show up in our full humanity with empathy. But to answer the question where we start, I absolutely think we start in the education system of doctors, nurses, any provider who's going to come in contact with a patient or family. Empathy has to be an integral part of the education And not just as a one-off course, in my opinion, I'm biased, but also thinking about the questions that we pose to doctors in different case studies or case scenarios, making sure that we're always bringing the lens of empathy into those case studies so that it becomes a more natural day-to-day experience for the provider. Lisa Kefauver, MSW. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Race to Value. Your work in grief and empathy activism is so profound and it's inspiring to me that that you're doing this work. And I truly think there's this integration that needs to take place with what you're doing within the broader value-based care movement. I just wanted to ask you, and as a closing comment, people are obviously here listening to this podcast. I'm I'm sure many people are interested in the work that you're doing at Reimagining Grief. Um, Can you provide our listeners with ways that they can engage with you in the work that you're doing and also the podcast that you have? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks to both of you for having me on the show today. I love what you're doing. And this notion of really thinking about value and patient care is really at the heart of what motivated me to do the work that I'm doing at Reimagining Grief. So thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. So I work at Reimagining Grief, both with individuals as a grief guide and mindfulness meditation, but I also, as you heard, work with organizations and educational institutions to bring empathy and uh, and grief uh, education to their facilities, to their systems, both in the corporate and particularly in the health spaces. So you can learn about more about that, just reimagininggrief.com. If you connect with me on LinkedIn, Lisa Kiefer, offer MSW. I do host a podcast myself where I am trying to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. That podcast is called grief as a sneaky, I'll just say B in case we don't swear on the show, but you guys get what I'm saying. And that's, it can be found on all your favorite podcast platforms. And I have some incredible thinkers on that show, including folks who are in the health and wellness community who help us expand our understanding of grief and particularly and empathy when it comes to healthcare. So I hope you'll check out the show. Thanks so much, Lisa. It's been an honor to have you on the show this week. Thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. 